chapter 14. The first 13 verses we looked at last week, we saw the assurance that it was there for the redeemed, the saints of God. They are identified as those who have devoted themselves to God, those who, have, who know the Lord and follow him, and such saints are considered the first fruits. The first of the harvest, speaking presumably of the resurrection. We also saw, while we have assurance for the redeemed, we also saw that there is assurance of God's judgment. If he is judge of the universe, then he must be just and true and righteous, and he must put all sin and wickedness right. He must make some punishment for that, and we looked at this last week. Part of the gospel is telling the lost that they are sinners worthy of God's wrath. It's not a very pretty part of the message, but it is a necessary part of the message. And then finally, last week we saw there will be no escape for the lost. God is just and righteous and holy and has the power in other words, the ability and the authority. He is the only one who has the right to pronounce judgment and an eternal sentence upon the ungodly. Now before we read this morning's text beginning in verse 14 of chapter 14, please remember these passages are meant to provide assurance for the saints of God. When we see in this world all kinds of rebellion, all kinds of wickedness, all kinds of sin, we need to remind ourselves from Revelation that punishment, true justice, is coming. In this day and age, justice seems to be understood as making everyone equal. That's justice. That's a lie. That's not true. I'm tempted to start right there and just talk about the true meaning of justice, but then I would lose my place and I don't want this to become political. Maybe one day. Revelation 14, beginning of verse 14. I have in the text in the bulletin that we would read through verse 8 of chapter 15, but I don't think we'll get that far today. Let's just read chapter 14, beginning of verse 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, and the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your, sharp, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for the grapes are ripe. 
So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the great harvest of the earth and threw it in the great winepress of the wrath of God. So the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as the horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Okay, let's just deal with chapter 14 this morning. We might get out early. <laughs> let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word and its truth and its power and help us this morning to see what is here for us. May it dispel any questions or confusions that we have and may we as your children be equipped be trained to follow you with understanding, with deep devotion that is fearless, with confidence in you. For you, you are not only our Redeemer, you are our King, our Lord, our Savior, our spiritual brother. You have made us all family. Help us take great comfort in this truth. In Christ's name, amen. Some of you may not be familiar with the name Julia Ward Howe. She was born, I believe, in 1821. She died in 1910. She was raised as a Calvinist, but as an adult, she became a universalist. If you don't know what a universalist is, a universalist is someone who does not believe in hell. They deny the existence of hell. They deny the eternal damnation. They believe that everyone's going to heaven. So she, she moved from the camp of the Calvinist to the camp of the heretic. I'm not making any condemnations on, on, on her at all. I'm just giving you some kind of a background. She was a very, along with her husband, was a very well-known abolitionist during the Civil War. She was against slavery, and there's nothing wrong with that. I'm, of course, we should be against slavery. Her husband was assigned by President Abraham Lincoln to be kind of a sanitation inspector for the military bases and the prisons for the Northern Armies. And as she was touring one of these things, one of these places for with her husband, she was kind of moved. She wanted to be able to do something for the cause of the war. She went home and thought about it and woke up in the night with lyrics on her mind. And she said, I need to write this down before it's lost. Battle Hymn of the Republic was written by Julia Ward Howe. She saw the Civil War as if it were the final war of God's judgment and that the northern armies had God's favor. Some of the verses you might be familiar with, some of the verses in the Battle Hymn of the Republic are drawn right from this text. In one of the verses, 
She wrote, I have seen him in the watchfires of a hundred circling camps. They have builded him an altar, the Lord an altar, in the evening dews and damps. I can read his righteous sentence by the dim and flaring lamps. His day is marching on. She saw in the armies of the north a holy purpose. She thought that this was God's righteous judgment upon a disobedient south. I'm not going to go there. In the last verse of her hymn, In the beauty of the lilies, Christ was born across the sea with a glory in his bosom that transfigures you and me. There's a lot of universalist theology in that line alone. As he died to make men holy, let us die to make men free while God is marching on. We need to be very careful. It's a beautiful hymn. I mean, I think it's in our hymn book. But it's not theologically accurate. We need to be very careful and we need to be very faithful to Scripture. The default theology of Christianity today is fast becoming a universalist theology. No hell, no condemnation, heaven for everyone. God is loving, God is inclusive, God is accepting, God is diverse. Did you hear the newscast this last week that the Church of England now refers in their worship service, they refer to God as they, them? God is all loving. God is love. But as I have taught before and I have preached before and I have said before, you cannot have true love without law. You cannot have love without some faithfulness. Somebody's got to be faithful to something. You come, you bring a, a man and a woman before the church, and they share vows. They are stating laws, promises to keep law, faithfulness to one another. In order for that union of love to bear any fruit, to see any blessing. You cannot have a love of friendship without some sort of fidelity to that friendship, some sort of law-keeping with that friendship. When you betray someone, whether it is a spouse or a family member or a friend, you are breaking a law that may not be written somewhere, but it is breaking a law of friendship. You are betraying a confidence. You are disappointing a friend. You're disappointing a loved one. You cannot have love without law. And so to declare that God is love, you have to define what that love means. God is loving and inclusive and accepting of everyone? No. Scripture clearly teaches that that is a lie, and we'll see some of that this morning. There are people who refuse to believe this. That God is a God of judgment. There will be people who refuse to believe. 
There are people who are secure in Christ. We have his assurance. You and I trust in him and we, through the instruction of his word and the power of his spirit, we try to keep faithful to his law and his word and his love. But there are also people outside of Christ who do not believe and we must warn them. Verses 14 through 16 and verses 17 through 19 sound like they're two different events, but they are, John is talking about the same event. It almost sounds like he restates some cooperation between angel, angels and the Lord and the administering of judgment, but it's, he's just reiterating or emphasizing that judgment is coming. Verse 14 I looked and behold a white cloud and seated on the cloud one like the Son of Man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. This is the Lord Jesus himself. He has a crown. He is glorified in the sky. And he is bringing judgment. In verse 15, Another angel came out of the temple calling a loud voice with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. It sounds a little confusing. What angel in heaven has any authority to tell the Lord Jesus what to do? You may recall one of the questions the disciples had of Jesus, of Jesus when he was on this earth. Lord, when shall we know this? What is the sign of your coming? When will you come? And Jesus told him, concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but nor the Son, only the Father. So here we see he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth and the earth was reaped only after the angel presumably coming from the father giving instruction to the son this is time this is over bring in the harvest the authority to delegate judgment comes from God the father God the son and God the Holy Spirit we should rejoice in that assurance because that is for you and I. And it seems in verse 17, he, it seems like he is saying this, describing another event, but it is the same thing. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar and the angel who has authority over fire and he called with a loud voice to the one who had a sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it in the great winepress of the wrath of God. 
this is the text where the late Mrs. Howell borrowed some imagery about the wrath of God and the wine press of judgment. God alone has the authority to judge and administer punishment coming from and through the Lord Jesus. God alone has the authority to judge and administer judgment, punishment, and it comes through the Lord Jesus. He is the one delegating the activity of all judgment. If you remember another time in Christ's message he was Matthew chapter 13 he was teaching the disciples and those who were following him lessons of parables one was a parable of the good and bad seed the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in the field but while his men were sleeping his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away So when the plants came up and bore grain, the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your hand? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do we want to go and gather them? But he said, No. Lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into the barn. Matthew 13 gives us several other lessons of parables. But near the end of the chapter, we have a record where the disciples came and asked, what do these parables mean, Lord? How do we understand them? In verse 36, verse 37, Jesus said, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man, and the field is the world, and the good seed is the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. Again, reaffirming what I said a moment ago, that there are those who believe and there are those who do not believe. There are those who should find assurance from Revelation, and there are those who should be very afraid of Revelation. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are the angels. So we get an account from 14 to 17. 14 to 16 or 14 to 17 in Revelation 14 and then 17 to 19 talking about Christ initiating judgment but he is getting a signal from the Father reap and then he delegates this reaping to the angels from glory he has the authority to judge and administer punishment through the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the one delegating the activity of judgment. Now here's a controversial, and for some in the modern church, an offensive statement. I don't think it would be offensive to us. 
God is not, I've already mentioned some of this already, God is not a God who expresses an all-inclusive, all-permissive love. Isaiah 42 said, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Most of you are very familiar with the opening, what I like to think, the preamble to the Ten Commandments. You shall love, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. I think we could change this. You shall not make for yourself an imagined image or any likeness or any of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to him, bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. God is a jealous God. He wants your devotion before anything else. He deserves your devotion more than anything else. And if you believe him and what he has done for you, if you receive Christ as your Savior, you need to understand that he has already given you everything that he has. He has given you all of his devotion. You should not waver from him one bit. I remember growing up, my mom used to say, I do not believe it one iota. She wasn't talking about God. or she, When someone was lying to her, she, I could tell. She, she would say, I do not believe it one iota. The iota or some see, say the iota, is the Greek letter equivalent to the letter I. It is the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet. I do not believe you one little bit. But what Christ has done for you, what God has done through you for Christ, through Christ your Savior, is he has made Every single promise, promise fulfilled, and he has not deviated one iota, one little bit. He has given you everything. Does he have not the right to demand everything of you? God is not a God who expresses an all-inclusive, all-permissive love. You devote yourself to, not just to him or to the idea of him, you devote yourself to his word and to his instruction and to his teaching. Just this past week I saw another example and there seems to be several every week. The Cathedral of Hope Church in Dallas, Texas recently held a Drag Sunday for their LGBT church service. You know, they have a separate LGBT church service, and this time they were celebrating drag queens. And if you watch the video, I don't understand these people. 
If I were a youngster to know you better, I would just say, these are very ugly clowns. They don't look very funny. But this particular Sunday, they were pronouncing a blessing on an organization. There is an organization of drag queens. They call themselves the Satanic Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. They're drag queens. And here's a church in Texas blessing them. There were several reverend doctors on the platform, and each of them reading part of the blessing. And Reverend Dr. Neil Thomas said, For too long we have denied the full expression of God's loving diversity. God is not a God who expresses an all-inclusive, all-permissive love. God is not a God who allows that kind of diversity. To believe anyone who says so is to believe a liar. Someone who is deceived. Fear God. Give him glory. Fear God and give him glory for his grace. Fear God and give him glory for his mercy. And we can even fear God and give glory, give him glory for his judgment. For he is coming one day and he will set all things right. Another controversial or potentially offensive statement is very closely related when he sets things right in his judgment God will send all believers to hell excuse me all unbelievers to hell those who deny Christ and those who deny the word of God and those who deny his truth are not saved they need to understand that they need to be told that they need to be, they're not going to like it they're going to rebel against it They're going to hate us for it, but they need to know it. Proverbs 11.21, be assured, an evil person will not go unpunished, but the offspring of the righteous will be delivered. Again, in Proverbs 16, everyone proud in heart, everyone proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Though they join forces, none will go unpunished. It looks like in this day and time that everybody seems to be jumping onto this baden wagon of diversity inclusion. Though they join hands, being proud of heart, no one will go unpunished. Verse 18 of Revelation 14, put in your sickle, gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the the earth and threw it in the great winepress of the wrath of God. We usually see the word wrath as being very angry, and yeah, that's not wrong, but I look, looking back at the derivative of the word, 
The beginning of the word comes from the Greek word thumos. Passion, angry, heat. Anger forthwith boiling up is what it means. Very angry. It's, it really is, you've ever had a thermos bottle to keep your soup hot or your coffee hot? That's where we get the word from. Keeps your stuff hot. It's talking about God, his rage, his wrath, his anger, his judgment is going to come forth as heat boiling up. Verse 20 of Revelation 14. The winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as the horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. There are two points I'd like to get out of this brief verse. I want to talk a little bit about, give us some understanding about 1,600 stadia, and I also want to talk about outside the camp, that phrase. First, about the stadia, what in the world is that? It's a distance. It's representative. Allow me to read just one paragraph from Derek Thomas's commentary on this passage. He said that the spreading of the blood for 1,600 stadia, and then he puts in parentheses four squared times 10 squared, approximately 184 squared, miles or 300 kilometers from the city is an approximate measurement of Palestine from the borders of Tyre to the borders of Egypt and could signal a comprehensive judgment of Palestine. But more likely, since both 4 and 10, remember 4 square times 10 squared is 1,600, since both 4 and 10 are numbers representing completion, in this case, 4 becomes symbolic of the four corners of the earth, north, south, east, and west. It is a way of describing worldwide judgment. The imagery is that of unbelievers being judged outside the true city of God. The winepress was trodden outside the city, and the blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 at Stadia. It's talking about worldwide judgment. All of those outside of Christ shall be judged. All of those within Christ are safe. Are you safe this morning? Do you know the Lord as your Savior? Or do you fear the great risk of his judgment. This needs to be settled. If you're lost, you need to receive him. His spirit is calling you. You need to receive him as your savior. He will forgive your sins. He will wash away all iniquity, all darkness, all stain, and make you whole and complete. He is that merciful. He is that gracious. Humble yourself before him, and he will become yours. 
This term, outside the camp. It's an Old Testament term that was used very often. Could be outside the camp or outside the gate or outside the temple, depending on where it's used. If you remember Leviticus chapter 10, two disobedient sons of the high priest, Nadab and Abihu, were killed by God for violating his sacrificial laws. Their relatives were told, take their ashes outside the camp. If someone had leprosy, he was to, was to dwell outside the camp. If a person was to be stoned to death, it was to happen outside the camp. The instruction was for more than just practical reasons. Things that were unfit or improper for life inside the camp were taken outside the camp. Outside the camp was where that which was unclean always belonged. God wanted to teach Israel, as he wants to teach us, that his city, his kingdom, must remain pure, holy, sanctified. All sinful and unclean things would remain outside the camp, outside the city, or outside the temple. That was Old Testament times. There is a kingdom of Christ. There is a city of God. And if you know Christ as your Savior, you belong as part of that. The kingdom is his chosen bride. You are part of his bride, part of his body. This bride once was in bondage to sin, but he gave his own life to set her free. Hebrews 13.10 borrows from the Old Testament language and points us to the New Testament Savior. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. In other words, he's talking about the priesthood that was still active during the time he wrote this book. But the priest, he was pointing out, the priests in Israel were following the law. They did not acknowledge the grace and mercy of God in Christ Jesus. We have an altar. We who believe in Christ have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Jesus took on himself your sin and your shame. Did you ever look at a map of Jerusalem? Particularly about the city, the, the, the temple, and where Golgotha is believed to be just looking on Mount Moriah, that same mountain where Abraham offered his son Isaac. Looking on that map, Golgotha was just north of the city and north of the temple. Christ was taken outside the city, outside the camp, in order to make the sacrifice proper and righteous for your salvation. 
in judgment, Jesus was removed from the holy presence of God. In judgment, Jesus was outside the walls of the temple, outside the city of Jerusalem. He became the unclean thing. He endured the wrath of God outside the gate. God's wrath meant for your sins was poured out on him. God's grace is given to all who receive the substitutionary sacrifice Jesus made. He died in my place. I will trust his offering. I can offer him nothing except my faith, my heart, my life, my devotion. God's grace is given to all who receive the substitutionary sacrifice Jesus made. And God's wrath will be expressed on all who reject the sacrifice of Jesus. You reject him, you're doomed. You will not tolerate it. You diss his only son, the only sacrifice that he offered for your place, for your sin, for your redemption. You disrespect that. You won't get in any other way. You won't get in by Muhammad. You won't get in by Mother Mary. You won't get in any other way. By your own works, by your own goodness, because you can never be good enough. You can only get in through Christ. John uses language that rang in the hearts of the early Christians. The winepress was trodden outside the city. And blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. When Christ comes to judge, he will take his own to himself, and then he will judge whatever is left, all those who are lost, all those who are unbelieving, all of those who are in proud rebellion. There are people who refuse to believe. There will be people who, believe, who refuse to believe. There are people who are secure in Christ, who have assurance from him for eternal life. I hope each and every, I, most of you are. I know most of you are. I hope every one of you are. But if you don't know him, make sure you receive him soon. There are people outside of Christ and we must warn them. We must be faithful to preach his truth, the full gospel, the full word of God. Second Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 5 through 10. The Apostle Paul writing to that church, admonishing them about how to be ready for the coming of the Lord. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, 
inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who believed because our testimony to you was believed. For all of the church who is faithful, who has suffered persecution, who have suffered any kind of oppression, who have suffered in this lifetime for the cause of Christ, we shall be vindicated. And his judgment will take place not within the city walls of the kingdom, but outside the camp. Because unrighteousness does not belong within the kingdom of God. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for this day and for this time together. We pray that you might speak to our hearts. Help us to be faithful to you in all things. We marvel at your word and its truth. And help us to digest the mysteries of revelation. Help us to live faithfully. For you, in Jesus' name, amen.